Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. Yeah, it was it was partly a curiosity, a little bit of guilt of leaving and wondering who had stayed and what they loved about the place and, and also just sort of a you know, a love letter to those people to tell them that, you know, them and their stories matter and it's you know not too typical ghost town story. Appalachia Meets World podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in Eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachian meets world. It's another week. It's Will. And Neil. How are you? I'm good. I'm good this week, man. I'm good. It's good to hear that energy. I know. I know. Exciting times. I know. I'm starting to rub off on you. It's good. I think so. Maybe it's in my inner energetic younger appeal that's starting to to rub off on you. Yeah, I live vicariously through you, and occasionally yeah. always have, out. right? Yeah, occasionally <laughs> it comes out. <laughs> Got an at biz for us this week? I do. Kind of in line with what we're going to talk about a little bit later with the Soar Summit, but. I wanted to talk about uh, a a nature-based accelerator in Asheville. It's been around for a little while, but I don't know if a lot of people have heard of it. It's called Accelerating Appalachia. Uh, It's a really cool accelerator and incubator for nature-based businesses out of Asheville. And a lot of uh, nature-based businesses have gone through it, have graduated, and are now uh, businesses throughout the region. Well, you speak about incubators, and I hadn't mentioned it in a while. But there's some natural incubation going on down here at the Warren household. Oh, what are you going to say? We're trying to have some chickens, bro. I was waiting. We've gone almost a month and Neil hasn't mentioned his chicken. I was waiting for it. I wasn't going to say anything. I was not going to say anything. It's it's wintertime and, you know, chickens are cold. We got them in a warm space. We got them inside in the barn and, you know, nurturing them a little bit. And we're just kind of letting eggs lay and seeing what happens. That is awesome. Natural incubation going on. Didn't mean to steal your thunder there. No, no, that's perfect. Perfect. Talk about an accelerator. Let a chicken lay on it for a bit. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, yeah, we just wanted to make the app biz of the week, the accelerating Appalachia. So if you're a nature-based business out there looking to grow, if you have an idea, and like I said, they're in food, clothing, shelter, and wellness, and they support businesses. It's based in Asheville, North Carolina. They've had everything from food to craft beverage to forest products to botanicals, the outdoor industry, soil and water, and other innovative triple bottom line businesses. So if you're in that area or if you're in need of some help, check them out. Acceleratingappalachia.org. You know, we've had several episodes where we talk about Appalachia being isolated or not being isolated, but one one of the ways that we Appalachia has been isolated is through its transportation system. I just wanted to point out that I saw that USDOT, the Federal Highway Administration, just awarded $1.2 billion to the Appalachian Highway System, um, which is a lot of money. It's over five years and it's split accordingly through this throughout 11 states in Appalachia. <clears throat> That's good, man. You start talking about those B words, I, I perk up. Pay attention. <laughs> yeah. Billions, you said? B with a B. But billions. Okay, <laughs> great. Man, and really, we have been isolated because of our highway system. And, and because of that, jobs and the economy have, have suffered. And it's all about leveling the playing field. And one other way you can do that, I think, is through broadband. You know, Kobe Hall 
that sword talked about that quite a bit, how much of a game changer broadband could be. And just like the transportation, just like the fe- the highway system, we should be putting tons of money into broadband throughout Appalachia. Yeah, I know where we grew up, you know, transportation was not real issue because of the interstate that we had that went right through our town. But I think we didn't really think about it. It kind of helped our town grow. Others throughout Appalachia don't have that same opportunity that our little town has had over the years. And ours has kind of seen a continual growth and I think those billions of dollars that you just mentioned will go a long way in helping some of those uh, towns that are, you know, not on the beaten path become the beaten path. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the plans on that and how that uh, all that spending shakes out. That'll be interesting. Yeah, and hopefully it'll get utilized. And it's that's a story to follow. Yeah, I mean, it's also due to the fact that these states haven't been getting money in the last several years through the pandemic <laughs> from, yeah. federal, from federal highway funds. But yeah, yeah, yeah just, you, you know, but before London, you know, we grew up in Pineville. You're old enough to remember when they built that uh, road. Rockdale Maiden Bypass? Yeah, in Pineville and how much of a big deal that was. And it wasn't an interstate, but it changed a lot in our small yeah. town. Yeah, for sure. Another thing I wanted to mention, SOAR. You know, we mentioned broadband, SOAR, Colby Hall, but they're having a mini summit summit in Ashland, March 7th and 8th. And that that Mm. is around tourism and downtown revitalization. That's all they're going to focus on, which I think is a pretty cool uh, event they're going to have over there in Ashland, Kentucky. Yeah, I recommend uh, anybody that's listening try try to find a reason to make it over. Pretty sure Appalachia Meets World is going to be there, too. Could be live, live and in person. Stay tuned on that. You know, we, we don't like to do too much live. You never know what's going to come out of Will's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> also, man, the ARC, I know we talk about the ARC on occasion. Um, Appalachia Regional Commission. They just have posted some stuff about the Inspire Initiative. I say that Appalachia Regional Commission because, you know, I think back to office setting when, you know, you're sitting in the break room or whatever, and somebody walks in and says, hey, the DOS with the QRL and the TWP have got to be turned in by five today. So you better make sure you get the TTY done. The ARC. And I, I just, I've always hated acronyms. But anyway, ARC stands for Appalachia Regional Commission. Anyway, That's right. Tell us about it. I, I was just going to say, they, they just uh, – put out this uh, Inspire initiative. They've had the Inspire initiative, but they're asking for um, anyone to apply. It's the Investment Supporting Partnerships and Recovery Ecosystems. So they're, they're trying to build the recovery ecosystem throughout Appalachia. Substance abuse is such an issue uh, where we're from, but all throughout Appalachia. It, you say it's a real issue where we're from, but man, the whole region, Appalachia is really the epicenter of substance abuse in this country. It saddens me to to admit that, but that's the harsh reality of, of where we are as a society. You know, you might as well own it and figure out pathways to, to get away from it and overcome it. There's not a family in Appalachia that hasn't been affected by some sort of substance abuse. So, Yeah, and there's a lot of people that point fingers of what caused it, who caused it. And one of those is... Have you read the book by Beth Macy, Dope Sick? Have you seen the limited series on Netflix? I like, I like that question better. Have, yeah, you have, you, have you seen it? Yeah, yeah, I like that question better. Because you know I ain't read about it. But <laughs> I, do, I do tend to watch documentaries and things like that. So. Well, this is, a, this is a not documentary. It's a series. <laughs> no, I have not seen that series that you're talking about. You know, it's all about the doctors and prescribing prescriptions and and big pharma pharma. but i I wanted to point out because one it gives an excellent portrayal of kind of true appalachia you know you see some of these movies and and just in in my mind or in our mind they they just get it wrong you know what i mean but if you watch this series they get a lot right about appalachia and it's it's not all roses and cherries it's it's a it's hard to watch sometimes, but I think the portrayal that they have of Appalachia in it is spot on. Speaking of great shows that uh, really depict what has happened 
throughout Appalachia when, when you talk about substance abuse. Have you seen the Netflix film Recovery Boys? That is a perfect segue. I have. Oh, oh segue, you say. <laughs> to what? <laughs> Tell me, Will. Our guest tonight. Uh, I guess I could say I've just been an admirer of her insane ability to, to tell stories. I'm looking forward to this episode and, and the person that we're about to bring on is a special guest and has done great work highlighting some of the things going on in Appalachia, not necessarily telling the bad or pointing fingers at Big Pharma like you discussed with, you know, telling the stories on the inside. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. I wanted to suggest that. In her other documentary on Netflix, Heroin, it talks about the doers, the people that are making change in Huntington, West Virginia, in that area, which is where uh, Elaine McMillian Sheldon is from, West Virginia in Appalachia. And she tells that story of three heroines in Huntington and, and what they're doing. And, and, you know, we'll talk about it on the show, but she has she has a bunch of work she has some stuff in the works and, and I'm excited to have her on. And, and uh, I'm so looking forward to just hearing her story and how, how she kind of put all this together. You want to get her on here? Yeah, let's get her on. I, I got, I got questions. All right. On tonight's episode, we have Elaine McMillian Sheldon. She's an Oscar nominated and Peabody and Emmy winning documentary filmmaker from West Virginia. Among other multiple awards, you can definitely check out her website, but I will mention several of her documentaries. Two of those are Heroin and Recovery Boys. Both look to the opioid crisis in West Virginia. Heroin was the 2018 Academy Award nominated film. Uh, it also won an Emmy. Tutwiler in 2020, which was nominated for an Emmy. And also in 2013, she did Hollow, a Peabody Award winning documentary. She's currently a professor in Knoxville, Tennessee, at the University of Tennessee, where she teaches cinema studies. And she's in production on her next documentary, King Cole, which I, we hope to talk about. Elaine, we want to thank you for being on the on the show and we appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Neil and I, like most Appalachians, we're big on tradition. One of those traditions that we have, that our family has, are appetizers at the holidays. We usually have a big spread. So I'll go ahead and ask you, what's your favorite appetizer or holiday dish? Mm, holiday dish. I didn't think about that. Well, I would say like the one food I can't get, I can't make. I've crafted my own cornbread recipe. I've crafted my own biscuit recipe, but I've not been able to nail pickle corn or pickle relish, like chow chow stuff. And I just yeah. crave it. I crave oh, yeah. that saltiness and I can only get it back home. So that's probably my favorite. That's a great one. Do you put them in pinto beans? Oh yeah. Beans? Yeah. Fried potatoes, pinto beans. is like my <laughs> favorite meal in the world. <laughs> Speaking my language. You and Will got a lot in common. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I love it's one thing about me is I love to travel and eat food from all around the world, but like beans, cornbread, raw onion, chow chow, fried potatoes is like home. Well, I got to ask you, yeah. have you ever had salmon patties? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That always came. I was getting ready to say, it sounds like a Thursday night at my mom's house, except you got to throw the salmon patties in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true it's true i haven't seen patties i never thought of them as going with that though i don't know that we eat them with that we're, we're weird in kentucky <laughs> you know we kind of ground our podcast on place and perspective your documentary hollow was it, it's really a beautiful interactive portrayal of the people and kind of the place of mcdowell county west virginia if, if you really dig into it i mean it's an it's an amazing film i, I congratulate you obviously on the awards that you won for it but what made you want to make that film? Was it just to bring light to the people or, or just because that, that was the subject that you wanted to film? What made you want to make that film? I had left West Virginia. I was in grad school, actually, in Boston when I started Hollow. I was just doing some research around, you know, you, when you leave the state or leave the region and you get anywhere else, you realize like 
if it, you're either like you flee the place and you want to get rid of all the labels you associated with it, or you are some way like trying to like reconcile you inside and outside of this place. And I think I was of the latter and trying to figure out like where I fit into the story of Appalachia as a person living in Boston now who didn't really see a future there. And so I started looking into numbers of people just out migration, just straight up population loss. And I grew up in Logan County, which is next door to McDowell County, but McDowell County had lost population nearly like 80,000 people by the time that we started filming since 1960. So it was on the decline in every single population factor of like every single um what was it the incorporated towns. My question was really a matter of like who stayed like I was a person who had left um, and I knew that my family had stayed in other places but who had stayed in McDowell and what were their dreams and hopes for the future and why did they stay and what was sort of their sense of agency and so the reason McDowell really mattered to me is because you know I think for a pretty big part of the first part of my work as documentarian I felt it was important to really confront stereotypes now I'm not so concerned that's our biggest issue (laughs) but I think that uh, you know that was something I was really concerned with and I felt like McDowell County had just been brutalized by the media from you know the war on poverty images to today being just painted as these stick figures who have one political view or one way of seeing the world and it represents the whole county or the whole state. And it's just, it felt like a place that had never really been given a chance to speak their own piece. And there are certainly films along the way that have done that, but I hope that this film, which is interactive, which is participatory, which is just a fancy word for saying people made it, you know, like it wasn't just me. I didn't just go in and film. I actually trained people to film that I hope that it would be a way to sort of like give back a bit more power to the people to redefine their story and to really have a say in how they were represented. Because ultimately we're making this project for the world, right? It's like, it's a website, hollowdocumentary.com. Anyone in the world can visit it. Yeah, it was it was partly a curiosity, a little bit of guilt of leaving and wondering who had stayed and what they loved about the place. And, and also just sort of a, you know, a love letter to those people to tell them that, you know, them and their stories matter. And it's, you know, not your typical ghost town story. And during filming, you you also moved back to West Virginia. Was it was that important to you? And what kind of drew you back to the mountains? Yeah, well, when I'm making work, I have to be close to what I'm doing, right? So, like to get the stuff that's I think worth people's attention and worth their time is takes time. And so either that means you have raise a bunch of money to like travel back and forth to a place, or you just save a little bit of money and live off peanut butter sandwiches and go live in that place for three months. And so, you know, I was in my twenties when I made that, so I could do all those things. And so, yeah, I lived there from May to September in McDowell. And that was just important because every single day I got up looking for another person to meet, looking for another photograph to capture another piece of audio, another kid to wanted to learn how to shoot content video. It's so different. It's so weird now. It's I shot that in 2012. It's 2021. Like Instagram had just come out. Not everyone had a smartphone. So the idea that someone had come into your community with these cameras to actually like train you to shoot video was something very novel. Like now kids film themselves on their phones all the time. Like it, I don't even think that project would be possible today because there was such a vulnerability and authenticity about what people were filming because we weren't yet living in the world where we all were filming ourselves on TikTok and Instagram. And so it's just a very like kind of a time capsule. It wasn't that long ago uh, to show how much our relationship with media has changed, which is why I say I'm not sure stereotypes is our biggest problem now. Because now, like, like back then, it really was dominant narratives handed down by media, whether it's national or international media, was really how it felt Appalachia was defined. And, you know, with media being what it is now, which is in our pockets, everybody can define Appalachia at this point. And there's still dominant ones that we have to fight against. But at the same time, I'm thinking now, like, I'm not sure what our biggest issue is now uh, to overcome from like a perception point of view to the world or to the nation. But I don't know if it's stereotypes. <laughs> yeah. I think we all talk, even on this podcast, we talk a lot about stereotypes, but it's definitely not our biggest issue these days. But one of those 
issues. And I, I don't think I mentioned before, but Heroin, Recovery Boys, and My Love are all Netflix films. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first documentary that I watched that you did was Heroin, which is a brilliant title, by the way. <laughs> my husband, he, he came up with that title. So <laughs> it's great. <laughs> you, you know, it, obviously it focuses on the opioid e- epidemic in Huntington, West Virginia specifically. But where Neil and I are from and where you're from, you know, the op- opioid epidemic is a major issue. But while, you know, most journalists focus on the problem of the opioid epidemic, your your film, Heroin, really kind of focuses on the doers or the problem solvers, the three problem solvers in Huntington that were really trying to make change. It was really a refreshing take on kind of a hard subject. How did that come about? Did you go into it knowing that you were going to kind of flip the script or kind of film the doers or the change makers instead of the actual problem? Yeah. Karen and I, we made that film in 2000, uh, I guess, 16, 17. It was released in 2017. We made it, we filmed it in 2016, 2017. And at that point, we were just sort of sitting, we were living in Chattanooga at the time before we moved back to West Virginia to make both of those films. And we just were like, the coverage around the opioid crisis was, I couldn't even watch it. It was unbearably like exploitative, depressing. And the fact is like, one of the reasons I couldn't watch it is because it hit home. You know, these are like my previous schoolmates. These are my friends that are dying. These are my friends who are mugshots. These are losing their kids. And I think I needed hope. Um, And so I certainly wasn't going to make a film that was, you know, just spreading the despair that I myself couldn't even consume. Because I really do feel like the conversation is now like, it's such a big conversation. Now, when we were making those People were talking about it, but it was really still from a statistics and headline point of view. I mean, we don't, we didn't have the empathy that we have now, like around the crisis, you know, there were still people, many, many people out there questioning whether we should even be giving naloxone to first responders back then. So like the tides have changed very quickly around that crisis. And we just wanted to like document some hope. And we went to Huntington and for the same reason I went to McDowell. It's like Huntington is the poster child of that issue in our state, my home state. And I didn't feel that was very fair once I got there and realized there's so many people working to do something better and it's actually working and they're not getting any attention. And, you know, Jan Rader has been in the fire department for 20 plus years as the only woman like busting her butt on a daily basis to like help people. And nobody's talking, nobody's talking about that, right? They're just, they're going to her for the doom and gloom So yeah, it was very intentional to find the people trying to make change, but also to not make it seem as if, but we've got this fixed, you know, like it's one thing to like show the people helping and make people feel good about it. Uh, Those people helping, it's another thing to be dishonest about it and be like, well, with these three people, we can change everything, you know, hopefully at the end of the film, which spoiler alert, the end of the film is ends with her going back on another call. We wanted that because we didn't want anybody sitting at home watching this to be like, I don't need to do anything. It's all fixed, you know? And I think a lot of media is served up that way. Uh, These hero stories that oversimplify things. And so we wanted those women to be the heroes they were, but also wanted to be honest about their struggles. The fact that they still get up every single day today in 2021 after filming that five years ago means that, you know, we still have a lot of work to do. Right. I I just wanted to ask, you know, when I was watching that film, I was thinking to myself, this is so relatable in every part of Eastern Kentucky and really all throughout Appalachia. Did you have a personal connection to Huntington that you chose Huntington or was it just one of those things, like you said before, that it was kind of close to where you grew up and you knew that it was going on there or was there a personal relationship that you had that led you there? Huntington was interesting to me because we were making two films at once. So we made Recovery Boys, which was all about this rural experience. And so we were looking for like a city experience of the same crisis, what that looked like. And so Huntington was interesting because they had created this task force to actually, you know, come up against this. And they had made headlines for some funding that they had had to actually get naloxone to firefighters. There wasn't like a lot of, at that time, I think Vice News had come out with something and the BBC was filming while we were filming, but mostly everything in Huntington was like, look how terrible this place is. And so it really was like, okay, we want to film in a place 
that has EMTs and police and like actual like frontline responders, whereas rural America, look, it looks very different. Like recovery voice is a completely different pace and completely different response because they're on a farm recovering, but, you know, working on a farm and building community, whereas heroin's is really like boots on the ground look. And so Huntington seemed like a, just the right fit for my home state's lens into that. I didn't have any connections with Huntington other than having gone there for some football games in Marshall. And it, and honestly, if we would have went there and not found the like incredible people that we found on day one of looking for the stories, that's what we always do is just go around and interview people and find people. And if Jan Rader wouldn't have just like rolled up to the place where we were, we were interviewing someone else and Jan Rader rolls up and we're like, well, this is, this is the star right here. This woman's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, you know, after being in Huntington for two hours, we're like, forget everything else we've thought. Like, let's just follow this lady cancel everything we've booked let's just see where this takes us because she's just dynamic and full of energy and positive and all the things we were looking for so it was partly Huntington but it was also a lot of Jan and then Jan opened the doors to everyone you know she opened the doors to the drug court she opened the doors to Nisha who helps the women who are trapped in sex work so it was really it's kind of Jan more than Huntington but It was it was hard for me to for me to watch Recovery Boys, to be honest with you, because because the stories, like Neil said, they're so relatable. But, you know, you feel so close to the individuals while you're watching them. And then the ending, some of the some of the endings are so it's just so hard to watch. But obviously, you know, you're a storyteller and maybe you want to touch on that a little bit of why you got into documentary filmmaking. But as a storyteller, especially one from the region, how do you draw the line between being exploitative and really just being uh, a voice or the champion of the people. You know, a lot, lot, like I said, outside journalists will come in and definitely exploit the region. How, how do you draw that line? Yeah, it's, it's hard. And I actually think it's like knowing when to pull back on things and when to take it like a bit further and where the honesty lies between that. Like you don't want to be the insider person who's just preaching to the choir, who's wearing rose colored glasses, who's not being honest. And you don't want to be the outsider who doesn't have any regard for how they represent people because they never have to face them again. Right. And so we're sort of this in between where the relationships we build with people dictate what goes on on screen. So like, we're not asking people to do things over If we don't catch it the first time, if we miss it, that's our fault. We don't direct people in that way. And so when we're filming something, we know that, yes, our presence there is affecting whatever we're filming just naturally, but that we haven't done anything unethical to set this particular thing up. Yeah. And so like, it's really tough when you're filming, you know, over 18 months with four guys in recovery, a lot of things that can happen in 18 months, you know, you see the highest of highs of someone's ascent into recovery, doing well, think you're going to get, get their kids back, think they're going to, you know, we had all these dreams of what the final scene of Jeff with his girls at Christmas was the sort of the thing that we always wanted. And we always thought we'd get because he was doing so well. And then it didn't end that way. And so it's really difficult to pick up the camera and shoot in those hard moments and not feel like you're exploiting. <laughs> I mean, it really is. You really have to check yourself and ask if what you're doing is helping or harming. And I think at the end of the day, like there's a lot of things we don't film. Um, there's a lot of things that we put the camera down and just be with that person and just as an observer, not as a documentary filmmaker. When you're going into filmmaking, do you look at it as, you know, you want to tell your story, you want to be the voice or do you go into it as I want to give others a voice, like like the individuals in recovery boys, you want to give them a voice? Yeah, I didn't have like we had no storyline in heroin or recovery boys. It was whatever they led us to. I, I don't really think that film can give people a voice. It's, it's more about amplifying their voice. So they already have one, just no one's listening. So how can we sort of amplify what they're, what they're already doing or what they're already saying with King Cole, which is like a much, it's a much different film than these two films we're talking about. I feel like these two films, heroin and recovery boys are much more rooted in sort of a old school journalism ethics where you really do take the time like before newsrooms would only let people spend 24 hours covering something you took the time to actually cultivate those sources and you got to know them and you treated them with respect because it mattered because you were going to go back and it wasn't a drop in for one day and unfortunately that's the media landscape right now so it's a matter of like following the person's lead rather than following our storyline 
because our storyline is never going to work out because we don't know. It's not our lives, right? So we can sort of like make a shot list of things we would like to get, but there's no guarantee they'll actually happen. So we don't actually stick to those things. I love all the the snippets in Hollow just because, I mean, it feels like I'm home when (laughs) when I'm watching it because it's so relatable to me and Mm -hmm. to Neil as well. But, you know, you go from Hollow, you have Heroin, Recovery Boys, and then Tutwiler, all hard to watch and then i don't know if, if anyone hasn't seen my love yet the, the the episode you filmed on netflix in vermont yeah go watch it i mean if you watch heroin and recovery boys tutwiler definitely go watch my love because it's so touching it's such a great piece i think you filmed it over a year with this couple yeah. Was it a conscious decision to film a couple outside of Appalachia? Do you feel like you don't want to pigeonhole yourself on just making stories about Appalachia? Was it a conscious decision to do it in Vermont? Well, I was I was actually hired for that. So whereas Heroin and Recovery Boys were things we cultivated and made and then sold to Netflix when they were finished, um, Netflix came to me, Boardwalk Pictures came to me and said, we want you to direct the American episode of this six episode series that's happening all across the world, focusing on elderly love and companionship. So great. And, yeah, it is a great concept. I'm glad you watched it. And it, it came out during COVID. So it's like, it doesn't feel like it exists. They reached out to me, Zan Aranda, the um, producer reached out to me because they wanted a couple in the South, actually, they, the general South. So I was actually I did a road trip through Texas and Louisiana and I'd I'd looked for couples my for months before I ended up just kind of giving up and someone in-house at Boardwalk Pictures which is the production company knew of Ginger and David in Vermont and I was like if you guys are willing to get rid of this idea of the rural south like let's go meet this couple in Vermont because they sound really sweet (laughs) and I got up there and uh I love Vermont it's like West Virginia, if West Virginia had never had coal, like it feels just like, I mean, it's like mountains and I mean, a little bit bigger mountains, uh, trees and very humble people. And it's a really cool place. I love, I loved it. But no, it wasn't a decision by me necessarily to leave Appalachia. It was actually, I was asked to find someone in the South, but I couldn't. So we went with the couple in Vermont. Um, but I mean, the pigeonholing thing is always a good question. And I think about it quite a bit, not quite a bit, but every now and then I think, oh, I wonder, it's just, it's impossible to know how you're perceived or how your work's perceived and what does it really matter at the end of the day if you're doing what you enjoy. But, you know, it is a question that's, it's often a question I ask my husband. It's like, is, is what I'm doing like seem small in our world today, which is like so global, right? Like we, and I'm like still the cheerleader of Appalachia through my films. Like, is that, is that a worthy fight? Well, and I love it. <laughs> well, and for me, it is like, it's where I'm from. And I don't know what I, I mean. I, I love a lot. I love a lot of stories around the world, but like, there's no stories like stories here because there's not a lot of people telling them here. There's, there's very few of us that are storytellers in the region, professional storytellers in the region. And I would like to prove the model that you don't have to leave to tell these stories. I, I work all over the country now. I've worked in, in larger cities and inner cities. And I see such similarities, even in, in inner cities with yeah. Appalachia, whether it be problems or just the people. And you mentioned the similarities in Vermont. Do you see that as well as you've moved or as you film in different areas? Do you see the similarities with Appalachia and that in the end, we're kind of not all that different? Oh, yeah. No, I think it's a I mean, it's such a ridiculous it's such a ridiculous thing to think we're all that different, really. I mean, I, yeah, I think whether you're looking at class or economic challenges or educational challenges. I mean, if you really want to say it, like Appalachians are everywhere. Like it's not a, the borders itself aren't really that relevant. It's like the core of people that I think exist. I met people in Albania that reminded me a lot of people from Eastern Kentucky, just the way they treated them, their community and their ties with family. And I just think that that's just, it's, that's why I like stories from this region is because, you know, there's no language barrier, like telling stories from other cultures, no cultural barrier. Like we can get to the heart of the matter really quickly. And that's what I like about telling stories here is like that intimacy can be built so much more deeply and quickly when you know the name of a holler or, you know, the principal's name, or you have a history with, 
you know, so-and-so's girlfriend, like you have like, you know, this knowledge, right. And this local knowledge, I think is something that is belittled in our world today, but I think it's extremely valuable. And, you know, the more and more connected we are locally to our communities, the more helpful we can be, which is ultimately like kind of one of the ways that reasons I make films, I want them to be helpful. I don't want to just make films for entertainment. I want them to like in my love, you know, I want that to feel, especially when it came out during COVID to feel like a balm to your soul, you know, it's like, this is a hard time. Let's like look at a year in a life just a year ago when things were a bit different and just like sit quietly with this couple and watch them nap <laughs> which is a scene in the film yeah that's great yeah. it reminded me so much of my grandparents <laughs> yeah. it's so funny but yeah. speaking of of uh matriarchs of the family our uh, mom she mentioned last week that and neil and i've talked about this before too that you really have to travel outside the region to realize how such a special region that we have in Appalachia, how we're kind of grounded on family, on culture, on tradition. But speaking of that, as you have begun to accumulate awards, like I said in the beginning, I couldn't let, I, we would be here all night if I tried to read all the awards that you've won. <laughs> but how have you been at handling the Hollywood of, of it all? Does that drive you in a sense now to win more awards or the Hollywood or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, yeah. Um, when the Oscar nomination happened, I don't remember at what point, whether it was like us being on that ridiculous red carpet or <laughs> if it was being like Netflix would send these. <laughs> this is a really funny story. Actually, we lived in the East end of Charleston, not a great apartment. We we're paying like 600 bucks a month to live in this apartment which was so cold. I had a sheet hung up (laughs) over the, like the rooms to keep heat in one room. Okay. This is where we're living. And Netflix sends a stretch or not a stretch, but like a black limo to pick us up, to take us to the Jaeger airport to get a flight (laughs) to LA. This this limo driver pulls up to our crappy little apartment east end of charleston is like this can't be right like we come out of the apartment and get in this ridiculous black limo and you know this guy's thinking like what in the world and we get on this tiny little airplane in jaeger airport and next thing we know we're in los angeles and it was just hilarious like i just the whole experience to me just felt like this will only happen once in your lifetime. Take a lot of notes. This is interesting. (laughs) But it's not something I work towards or expect. I appreciate it. It was a really interesting experience. I'm very grateful for it. It opens a lot of doors for other projects. And I think that if I wanted a different type of career, I would have a very different trajectory. I've ever since the uh, Oscar nomination, the primary thing that I've been pitched by agents or tv shows or celebrity documentaries probably celebrity documentaries you've watched and i have turned them down not because i think it's a bad idea to do them but they're just not for me and it sounds incredibly boring if i'm honest (laughs) to spend my time doing that so like awards are wonderful in the sense of the doors they open and hopefully they allow you to make more work but just to get awards for the sake of getting an award. It's a very fleeting thing. It's I'm grateful for it, but I'd still be doing what I'm doing if I wouldn't have them. And I don't really think I fit very well into that world anyway. So I'm happy to just be like functioning, doing my own thing. Totally, totally makes sense to Neil and I. And and kind of to that point, how how do you come up with your subjects? Do do you focus on problems? Do you just come up with stories on on your own? Or is it from your upbringing, where you're from? I I don't know. Yeah, I think every project kind of leads to another. I think ideas, coming up with ideas that are worth pursuing. I'm pretty slow thinker in that way. It looks like I've made a lot of work, but every idea that I've made has been bubbling underneath the surface for even longer. And it takes me a long time to commit to an idea because it takes a long time to make a film. And if you're not into it and you're not into the most boring parts of it and slog your way through it, then you're not going to finish it. And so I know that. And so most of my ideas are kind of a reflection of where I am in life. So Hollow was a reflection of being gone. Like I would have never made that film if I wouldn't have left the state never thought to make that film why would I be looking at population loss numbers from inside the state it's just not like something I would have been doing so it's a reflection of sort of reconciling like 
my role in that. And it's not a personal story, but it came, the idea came from a personal place and heroin recovery boys certainly came from a personal place of just being from a place so hard hit by that, that I just wanted to see more hope. I needed that hope. And Tutwiler actually was just a really interesting opportunity to look at the woman's experience in addiction and uh, incarceration, which recovery boys, I had looked at the male experience. And then my love was like, wow, I've just got off these really depressing films. Like this is a great opportunity to just sort of reset. Yeah. So, and then King Cole, the, what I'm working on now is so different because part of it's fiction and I'm writing it. And so part of it's documentary and part of it's fiction. And, and it is completely a film that is hard to explain because it's been bubbling for so long of me just wanting to not document a conversation that's necessarily being had, but to create a new conversation. Right. So like looking at our beyond coal world, like what does that look like for Appalachia and my family, my brother still works at a coal company. He goes to work until recently. He works in an office now, but until recently, he's been underground, working underground since we both graduated from college. And my he's dad retired. Works in West Virginia. Yeah, he works in McDowell. My dad was in the mines until he retired, and all my uncles and cousins are still in the mines. And so I am concerned both about the future of their survival, but also the future of our planet, <laughs> the survival of our planet. There's them concerned from all sides. And so this film is really a question of like, who can we be and who are we beyond this? Um, because we have to figure it out. And our, certainly our politicians and leaders aren't doing a very good job. We've been in a spir- death spiral economically for decades now over this. And we have not invested the imagination and energy to reinvent what it means to live in coal communities. And the people that are doing it are doing it all on their own, basically, right? Like it goes back to these unsung heroes, like the people that are building these trails and people that are actually like rebuilding topsoil, like all these things that are happening need to happen in order for us to have healthy communities in the future. Yeah, we've had so. several people on from West Virginia, Cofield Development. I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with him. I mean, Brandon, you know, he started that, his own nonprofit himself, just because. Yeah. But speaking of King Cole and how it's been bubbling up, you know, with documentaries, you know, you can film for one, two, three, multiple, multiple years before you even start, you know, the editing process or even the production process not to mention the any funding that may come. Can you speak a little bit about the funding, but also in a world of, like we've already mentioned, instant gratification? You know, when you're taking so long to film a documentary, stories change by the week, by the hour these days. How do you know that what you're focusing on is still going to be a focus in one, two, three years? You don't know. I mean, there's just no way to know. Okay. The, and honestly, the the hard part is, You could spend five years making a film that should have been released a year earlier or a year later. It because that is impossible to control. I can only focus on the things I know I can control. And so what that is, is documenting what I can when it's right in front of me. And so that's what's been my priority. And so King Cole, we started filming in 2019. It's 2021. We won't finish filming till the mid next year. And then hopefully we'll release it at the end of next year early. 2023. And so like, I hope there's still an appetite for this story. I'm not even sure there's an appetite for this story now. I guess that's sort of the point is like with hollow, like nobody had made an interactive documentary, an independent interactive documentary. The national film board of Canada had been making them and like the New York times, but like nobody was stupid enough (laughs) other than us to like spend a year building a website. Like we had no publicists. We had no way to know how to get this out but we were like well, we're gonna get it out and so we had this incredible team who just like put your heart and soul into just blasting it to everyone you could know and applying for awards and doing all this stuff and somehow people found out about it I mean so I do believe there's always an audience there's always an ear for the thing that if you care enough about it you can find the people and I don't expect you know King Cole it's not going to have you know the Netflix eyeballs it's not that type of film it's it's definitely more experimental uh, artist film in some ways it's not a commercial sort of film in that way but I think I think there's gonna be a huge demand I hope there's a huge demand for it among young people in rural places who 
call it coal, call it timber, call it cotton, call it corn, whatever it is in your community. If you've been living in a mono economy and that goes under what's next, which is the, the essentially the whole thing. So yeah, I oscillate from being super secure about like what I'm doing. Like, this is a great idea. I really am digging this. This is going really well. And also like I deleted Instagram and deleted all, like I don't really play in the Instant gratification space because I don't find it gratifying even for an instant. Like I find it to be just actually like kind of creative and soul sucking in some way, because I can't, like you said, like you can put something out today and it changes tomorrow. And I don't, I can't live in that. I can't produce stories in that world. That world is not a good world for storytelling that world is a world where we don't think deeply right like we're just like reactionary 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 which might be good for things like comedy but for in-depth empathetic storytelling you kind of just have to like have some restraint from those things I don't know if I'm doing the right thing about all of it but here I am (laughs) (laughs) Neil and I we always talk about gassing up Appalachia that's one of the one of the main reasons why we have this podcast to really gas up Appalachia I wanted to give you a second to to gas up at at, uh, West Virginia with some questions what do we mean by gas up Oh. Yeah, so I, I knew she was going to ask that. I was like, nobody says that except us, Will. <laughs> Gassing up Appalachia is just basically, I really feel like what you're trying to do when you tell the stories about uh, people that are trying to help, Will and I have kind of made a conscious effort of trying to point out some of the people like yourself throughout Appalachia that are doing great things that the ordinary person may not ever hear about. So uh, when we say gas up, we're just trying to talk good about, I guess is the best way mm-hmm. to say it. And, and I didn't I, know if you meant like light it on fire, talk crap or. <laughs> like, like couches. Yeah. We, we don't burn couches. <laughs> I am a mountaineer. So. I will say that we learned that term from another mountaineer that, that has been on the episode before. So it, it's straight out of West Virginia. I believe it. Um, gas up West Virginia. No, I, I have some questions. So, so oh, okay. uh, what's your favorite thing to do in West Virginia? Oh, uh, go to the cranberry back country and hike and lay on those moss forest floors. Just be out there. Cranberry back country is unbelievable and no one's ever out there. Where is that in West Virginia? Like what Not far that? from Richwood. It's the Monongahela National Forest. It's unbelievable. Like, seriously gorgeous. It's in between Richwood and Marlington. Um, And if you fish, there's good fishing up there. And it's beautiful. Favorite festival. We've had an episode on how important festivals are to Appalachia in general, but especially where we're from. But favorite festival in West Virginia. Mm -hmm. What is my favorite festival in West Virginia? Actually, you know what? My favorite, it's not an official festival, but it happens every year and I so admire it. And it's kind of like this private thing. There's this woman named Marsha Timpson who lives in War, West Virginia. She operates Big Creek People in Action. She hosts volunteers from all over the nation. They come to like fix houses and do stuff in McDowell County. She hosts this group from Berea um, that come every year and she takes them out like way out this holler to the end of it. And they have a stage and they do all these like Dolly Parton impersonations, Elvis impersonations. They have this huge meal down this long table. It's in hollow, like pieces of it are in hollow in her portrait. But I think that's my favorite festival, like the quiet one that happens at the end of the holler that not a lot of people know about except family and like kin and friends. Do you have a favorite West Virginian? Mm. Uh, My papa, my papa Doy is my grandpa. He's I don't know if you saw my John Prime music video for Summer's End. Yeah, I loved it. But he's the grandpa in that music video. The the older gentleman in the beginning, right in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. So he's just this beautiful. He's my he's he my favorite John Prine experience was when I was like, we went to film in Nashville with him and he didn't come to West Virginia for those parts, but I showed him a picture of my papa. I was like, I found or I'm I'm my grandpa like agreed to be the grandpa in the music video and and I showed him a picture and John Prine said, That man is West Virginia. And I was like, Yes. <laughs> because it's just like the lines on his face he looks like he's like a map and he's just got beautiful hair and he's my favorite West Virginian he's the real deal that's perfect did you did you attend the Blair Mountain Centennial 
I did. Yeah. We filmed the uh, first day of the March, the March to Blair Mountain and filmed the dissident church service with Brad and something else. I can't remember. Oh, we had we had several people on from the museum uh, on an episode. Yeah. So yeah. I have a, a West Virginia quiz for you, if you're willing oh. I'm probably going to fail. Go ahead, though. Spoiler, I wasn't even born in West Virginia. Don't tell the people that. I know. I was born in Abingdon, Virginia. Okay. Okay. Because this is what happens when you're born in the 80s and your dad's a coal miner. There are layoffs and shutdowns. And we moved from Abingdon to Logan, Abingdon to Logan, 10 times before I was in sixth grade. So I was born during one of those moves. And then we moved back to West Virginia. Well, you spent enough time there. You, I think you'll probably do okay in this quiz. I'll probably fail, but that's just because I have bad memories. So in the Capitol, Charleston, do you know where on Capitol Street the mortar man is? Have you ever heard of the mortar man? Yeah, I have heard this. He's on the little, he's on the building. Uh, it's the build. I don't know what the building's called, but it has like the little spiral tendril things on it. And he's sitting there. Yeah, yeah. It's a cool, it's got, he's got his own Facebook page. Does he? I didn't know that. Yeah, I used to work at the Daily Mail, the Charleston Daily Mail, and I found out about him then. For for the listeners that don't know, just check it out. Mortarman. Cool. Do you know who the NBA logo is? Oh, yeah, it's Jerry West. See, you're doing so well. <laughs> Shyland, Shyland, West Virginia. I don't really know where that is, but that's where he's from. Do you know what city in West Virginia started or where Mother's Day was started? Grafton. Grafton, yeah, three for three. Look at you. <laughs> My husband's from uh, near Grafton, and the Anna Jarvis, which is her name, the lady who started Mother's Day, has like a memorial there. <laughs> nice. So, America's oldest dime store. Do you know the name? Do you know what city it's in? Is it is it Ben Franklin? No. Is it in Fayetteville? Is that a dime store? Uh, I don't know, but it's officially Burdine's Five and Dime. In Harris, Harrisville. Where's Where, Harrisville? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I could definitely not pass this quiz. So do you know what city the the visitor center made entirely of coal? The only Yeah, Williamson. Coal? What's that? <laughs> Williamson. Williamson, where the Tug Valley Chamber. It's pretty it cool is. little building. If, uh, it is. Yeah. It's in King Cole. It's in my film for oh, sure. It is? Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. So this is relatable to you. What Academy, and it's not Deliverance, what Academy Award-winning film was shot in Weirton, West Virginia? Oh, uh, was that the Super 8? Did that win an award? Actually, it did not win an award, but I think it was filmed there too. But it's The Deer Hunter. Oh, The Deer Hunter. Oh, yeah. But I think Super 8 was filmed there too, or somewhere. Somewhere. Wheeling, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. So I have two more. Okay. You say you're a big hiker. Your favorite thing to do is hike. What's the highest peak in West Virginia? I think it's for snob, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Yes, yes. And last one, what is, well, this is a two-part question because I'm just curious, but what is on the West Virginia quarter? Oh, I think it's the New River Gorge Bridge. If it I is. <laughs> Have you ever attended Bridge Day? Yeah, I think I haven't been there forever. I think last time I was there was like 2010, but yeah. Maybe my um, wife is not going to listen to this episode, but that's my lifelong dream to jump. Jump. Yes. I, I have to be trained, I guess. You, apparently, you have to be trained in order to... Trust me, I've checked into it. <laughs> Do it. That's awesome. Um, he, he has experience of jumping off bridges, uh, just so you know. <laughs> not, with the, not with the parachute on my back. But. <laughs> so I, I, have to, I have to ask this question. Just as a, I have to get this question in, we ask everybody this question and i'm curious to know when i say this word what's the first thing that comes to mind of a of a film producer like yourself when i say the word appalachia up mountains or like i guess i guess maybe people in the west would call them hills but i call them mountains (laughs) absolutely they're mountains yeah (laughs) we can end on this question it's another question that we ask everyone and you've kind of already answered it you kind of answered in your work but where do you call home and what makes it home to you what what makes it unique for you I think I actually call home a part of West Virginia that I actually never even lived in but it's where all my family still lives and where they lived for as far back as I can tell I'm the ninth generation in the region the past five generations have all lived on the same 
up the same holler on Fenwick Mountain in Nicholas County. And I personally have never lived there, but it's where all my great aunts and uncles still live, my aunts and uncles and my cousins. It's just amazing to go down this road and literally your whole family is just dotted along it. We didn't live there because my dad left Richwood and Nettie and all those places to go to college. And so like, even though I never lived there, it feels like home because it's my family. Like they're there and um, they're always there. Like you need them, you go there and someone, one of them is going to be around and they're starting to die off. You know, some of them are in their nineties at this point, you know, my cousin's the youngest and he's 24 or something and lives the very end of the holler. And so it's starting to become like it's slipping away because he could leave at any moment and the the older ones are dying. So that's what feels like home, especially because I don't want to lose it. That's home is, is Fenwick Mountain, West Virginia. I got one more question, Will. I'm yeah, sorry. Okay. So I just have to tell you, I have a 11-year-old and a 9-year-old and they want to ask, what advice would you give to two young kids who are interested in making movies, but the only way they know how to make a film is on YouTube. What advice would you give to young kids who are interested in what you do? Kids now are so much uh, more capable of making films than I was. Like having filming equipment when I was little was like, you had a VHS tape recorder and like, it was a mess, right? Now, like you can make films, you can you don't need a budget. You don't need a crew. You don't need, you just need an idea and some friends to make it with. So all my work that came before hollow was me just going out and hollow, including hollow. But I say this because nobody saw any of the other stuff. Right. So like all that stuff, you have to make a lot of bad, bad stuff that you don't want anyone to see before you make anything that really like people will enjoy. And so I would say, if you want to make films, make films like there's nobody that's going to give you permission no matter how long you wait there's no city you need to live in that is going to unlock the key to you making films like if you want to make films you make films and I wanted to be a storyteller so that's just where I started I just started writing stories and uh, doing photography and so kids these days are set they've got YouTube that's amazing we didn't have YouTube (laughs) we had no way to share anything you want to make movies make your movies and you know on your 10th one it'll be worth something maybe more than your mom or dad will appreciate and then that'll make you feel good and you'll be able to make the next one but just keep doing it it's a great great answer elaine thank thank you so much for your time this is i I, i'll speak for myself i'm sure neil too but this has been an excellent conversation and and we we definitely appreciate it thanks for your thoughtful questions it was great to meet you guys Will, again, I can't believe we just had on that guest very down to earth, and I'm grateful for her time tonight. Yeah, you know, as we mentioned in the interview, she's done some amazing work just telling the true stories. You know, a lot, the majority of her work is based in Appalachia, Recovery Boys, Heroin, Tutwiler, just the the true grit of Appalachia. And and like I said, she's she's not telling these stories to port point fingers she's uh, like in heroin she's telling the stories about the change change makers in in the communities people that are trying to do something to overcome uh the, the problems or challenges that we have like i mentioned at the beginning of this episode you know there's not a family one that's not been affected by some type of drug abuse throughout appalachia and you know she's just telling the stories of what millions of us are going through literally millions and uh, bringing light to reality. And I, th- I think it's great uh, what she's done. She's a beautiful storyteller and, you know, what she's currently doing. Uh, I look forward to seeing more from Elaine. Yeah. You, you know, we talked about King Cole and how kind of a different documentary film that will be. And I, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that too. I'm kind of excited to see what she's got going on in that regard. Absolutely. How about that West Virginia knowledge she's got as well? I mean, <laughs> she, yeah. <laughs> she came through. Yeah, absolutely. Representing West I was, Virginia. I was a little bit surprised by by her ability to answer those questions. I mean, that, that's that's some good stuff. Right off the top of her head. I mean, it, yeah. it wasn't even there wasn't even a question. There was no preparation. Our listeners need to know that. We don't give these questions out before. 
That was that was true trivia. Off the top of the head. I was killed it. Killed it. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of neat to even hear her stories of of just the industry. You know, it's something that obviously we don't have a lot of knowledge about. Just uh, the industry and 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 the Hollywood glitz and glamour of it. Like you said, she's very down to earth and her accomplishments are incredible. You heard me mention when I told my kids I was interviewing a, a filmmaker, film producer. They were, of course, they, they're they YouTube stars. They wanted to hear what she had to say and they listened to, to our entire interview. Very interesting to me that they were on the edge of their seat, just captivated by somebody with, with her esteemed popularity. And uh, I was really grateful to to get to talk to her. She could be living in a lot of places and, and she chooses to live in the Appalachian region to make films about the Appalachian region. And I commend her for that. And, and you could just tell by the way she spoke about the region and by the work that she does, just how proud of where she's from, what the region has given to her and what she continues to give back. So, you know, we always have the, uh, our Of Place segment, and I wanted to ask you tonight if during the course of our interview or even uh, thinking about some of Elaine's films, if anything came to mind that really kind of struck you, that put you in, in uh, the mind frame of, of Of Place. You know, this one, this Of Place is a little bit different, especially considering some of the subject matter we just spoke about with Elaine. She talked about the one coming out in regards to King Cole. So it's the industry in Appalachia. She also talked about substance abuse, which is a major challenge within our region. Uh, and, and several of her documentaries, as we suggested, have been about that. But I kind of want to transition. And we did mention this during the interview. But her documentary that she did, just one um, episode of this documentary, My Love. If you haven't seen it, Go check out My Love. So these are love stories of people throughout the world. And, and it just kind of gives an up-close-and-personal look at their life and their, and their long love story. It's a, it's a cool documentary. I haven't watched them all. I only watched the one that Elaine did. I, I wanted to mention it in Of Place because it just took me back to grandmother and papaw. You, you know, you can get nostalgia from a lot of things, but just watching this, it almost, almost brought a tear to my eye. Almost. <laughs> and and, and I, all of our listeners know that doesn't happen often. <laughs> but, anytime, anytime you can talk about our grandparents, though, and you can think about our grandmother sitting in the bathroom every morning combing that silver fox's white hair, uh, it just... You know, it'll touch you. That's exactly what I was getting ready to say. I, I mean, that's kind of that's what it reminded me of. Grandmother laying out in the clothes for for Papa, combing his hair in the morning. It's a good, refreshing switch from her other do- her other documentaries are excellent watches, but they they they're hard sometimes to watch in regards to the the subject matter. And this documentary is an enlightening experience that just shows the true love between two individuals. I mean, it's really heartwarming. It's a great watch. And it just reminded me of how our grandparents grew uh, were uh, when we grew up and just seeing them. And it just, that, that's exactly what it reminded me of. Even when the two, I don't want to give anything away, but when they fall asleep watching TV yeah. <laughs> side by side, I mean, that's what it reminded me of. And it just took me back to that of place. Uh, and that's why I wanted to mention it here. I'm glad you did. I, I'm sure that I'll wake up in the morning and no one will comb my hair, but uh, <laughs> I do often. <laughs> I think you have to be married 30 plus before you get your hair combed. Look, if you have hair by then. I so look forward to the day when I can sit there and get my hair dried and combed each morning. <laughs> I, I, I did want to say, uh, I, I know we're at the closing of the episode, but two of her documentaries, Recovery Boys and Heroin, Heroin both, as we mentioned, talked about the substance abuse disorder and the, the challenges that we have in our region. And we just wanted to dive into that a little bit more in the next episode. So you'll hear that in the next episode. I just wanted to bring that up to let people know 
that that's coming. It's such an issue, such a challenge here that we just wanted to just to dive into it just a little bit more to help, to try to understand it a little better. Yeah, um, I don't know if anybody can fully understand it, uh, but we did want to talk a little bit more about it. So we'll we'll be doing that uh, in the in the coming episodes. So stay tuned. All right, man. You got anything else tonight? No, man. Just looking forward to our our uh, listeners reaching out to us. Hit us up on social, man. Uh, give us a shout out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, somewhere. Let us know you're still listening and let us know what you're interested in. Uh, we like to bring great content to uh, our listeners and anything that's weighing heavy on your heart and mind or throughout Appalachia that we're not touching, make sure you let us know. Definitely. Let's gas it up and subscribe and follow. Let's get those followers up so you'll know when we put stuff out. Beep, beep. All right, I guess since we are at that time, I'll end it like I usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter, the air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long. Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs. Now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains.